Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabisolo Hoko and Neto Chimani. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Legal battle looms between South Africa's president and the public protector and violent kidnappings for ransom spread across Nigeria. In economics news, Safaricom CEO Bob Collimore dies in Nairobi. And in sports news, Morocco beats South Africa to qualify for AFCON quarterfinals. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Mauritania's Constitutional Council has confirmed uh, Mohamed Ould Gazwani as the country's president-elect. The council announced on Monday that Ould Gazwani had been elected to a five-year term. He is to be inaugurated on August 1st. Gazwani, a 62-year-old retired general who served as defense minister before being picked as the chosen successor to Mauritania's outgoing president, won the June 22 election with 52% of the vote, according to the elect Commission. The confirmation by the Constitutional Council paves the way for Mauritania's first peaceful transfer of power since its independence from France in 1960, though retiring President Mohamed Ould Abdelaziz handpicked his successor. Aziz was barred from seeking a third term under Mauritania's constitution. World Health Organization Regional Director for Africa, Dr. Matsudiso Mwedi, has commended Uganda health workers and health ministry officials for their sharpened preparedness to respond to the Ebola outbreak. Mwedi recently visited one of the high-risk districts in western Uganda. Since last month, when Uganda declared the Ebola virus disease outbreak, there have been three confirmed cases, all of whom had traveled to the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. Uganda shares a nearly 900 kilometer-long, often porous border with the DRC, where the diseases claimed more than 1,400 lives since last year August. More than 100 people who had contacts with the confirmed cases are being monitored. Since the outbreak was declared, 1,063 high-risk individuals have been vaccinated. Three bodies with bullet wounds have been found in Sudan's Omdurman city, bringing the total death toll from Sunday's anti-military protests to at least 10 across the country. The identities of the three dead were not immediately clear. Crowds of people gathered around the bodies chanting Just Fall, a common slogan of the protest movement that has rocked Sudan since demonstrations first erupted against since ousted ruler Omar al-Bashir in December. Protesters want the military leaders to fall from power as al-Bashir did. 
More than 150 homes have bent down, killing a seven-year-old girl in eastern DRC. The fire was sparked in a house where a woman was frying donuts near cans of petrol. The fire broke out in the city of Bukavu, where locals were celebrating the country's 4-0 Africa Cup of Nations victory over Zimbabwe. Mayor Gerard Mignole of the Kadutu commune struck by the blaze said a child was killed, three people injured, and 100 159 homes bent down, leaving about 400 families roofless. President Felix Chisekede offered his condolences to the family of the little girl. And more than 1,000 people have been evacuated from villages in northeastern Germany as three wildfires have come together into a huge blaze. Hundreds of firefighters have been deployed to a military training site where the fires are burning. There are fears that ammunition stocks there may explode. The BBC's Damien Grammaticus reports. The fire started almost a week ago and at first it seemed that the authorities had the situation under control but things have now got worse again, partly because of wind. Police say they suspect three separate fires were started deliberately but so far haven't given any details about who might be responsible and why. The smaller fires have now come together in one huge blaze covering an area the size of hundreds of football pitches. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaga. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Bigger and better, Africa's leading smart city summit returns to Johannesburg, South Africa from 3 to 4 July 2019. Smart Cities Africa Summit 2019 is focused on co-creating smart cities in Africa beyond the rhetoric. Join Channel Africa, bringing you 40 speakers from 40 African countries to speak to 400 delegates. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Channel Africa. Africa's public protector advocate Busasuam Mkwebane and President Sil Ramaphosa. In an exchange of letters, the two officers are disagreeing on the legal status of the public protector's remedial actions while the report is under review. In May, the public protector found that Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon violated the constitution when he approved an early pension payout for then SARS Deputy Commissioner Ivan Pillay. Gordon has since taken the report which recommended that disciplinary action be taken against him on review. Nomalizo Mandela has more. In the statement, President Ramaphosa says he explicitly stated that this written response was in compliance with the Public Protector's directives for him to submit an implementation plan within 30 days. Ramaphosa added that he then indicated to Mkwebane his intention to defer his decision on what disciplinary action, if any, to take against Godan until final determination of his review application. The public protector spokesperson, Opa Sekhalwe, disagrees. Uh, the constitutional court was very clear that the, the public protector's remedial action is binding unless set aside by a court of law. So as we speak now, there is no court order setting aside that particular remedial action. 
all that you have is uh, action on the part of uh, those who are unhappy with the findings. The matter has also divided constitutional experts. Professor Kathy Govender, a research fellow in law at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, says the general rule of law should apply. What is unclear is, as you point out, what happens in the interim while the decision is being taken on review. The general principle in law is that if you are appealing a decision, then the decision is suspended until the appeal court has pronounced on it. And I, I think that the same principle would apply to the public protector. However, another expert, a senior lecturer in public law at the University of Cape Town, Dr. Kathy Powell, believes that the correct option would be that of the public protector. There's a difference in South African law between administrative action which gets reviewed and decisions such as judicial decisions that get appealed. If a decision is appealed, and generally we're talking about judgments here, then the, the judgment is lifted. It, it's, it's set aside until the appeal is heard. Generally, for administrative action, the action remains valid until it is overturned. The Public Protector's Office believes that the President may have been wrongly advised on the matter and urges him to heed its warning. She is of the view that the President received wrong legal advice, and so writing to him is to bring that to his attention and uh, inform him that this matter has been dealt with by the Supreme Court of Appeal. Uh, and and I'm, I'm referring here to uh, the whole point of whether uh, the institution of review, review proceedings stays uh, the implementation of a decision. Um, in order to have the remedial action suspended pending the review proceedings, uh, the president ought to approach the court uh, for an order interdicting the implementation thereof. That's a spokesperson for South Africa's public protector, Opa Sekhalwe, ending that report by Nomalizo Mandela in Johannesburg. South Africa's province of Gauteng will be focusing on creating special economic zones. In his State of the Province address, Premier David Makura said the province wants to lead the, the drive to economic stability in the province and economic zones, and certain industries would form the main focus. Makura also highlighted job creation, particularly for young people, township economies, and formalizing informal industries such as informal mining and waste disposal. Angela Bulwana reports. Makura's big plan for a second term in office seems to be the creation of special economic zones. Makura introduced this plan during his State of the Province address in Soweto on Monday. He says these zones and industrial parks, coupled with a focus on certain industries such as the automotive industry and plans to bump up intra-Africa trade, should see how their lead President Ramaphosa's dream of a revitalized economy. They also create new industries as we have seen it in Roslyn. They create new industries and bring in new suppliers, particularly in our case, black and women suppliers, and link them with the value chains of transnational corporations, and in this particular case, original equipment manufacturers. 
Cities such as Ikurulene have already been spearheading mega cities, which host thousands of residents and are also working towards what they call aerotropolis, which are mega manufacturing cities. Makura says the province will focus on the automotive sector, agro-processing, ICT, finance, business tourism and hospitality. He hailed his township economy project, saying that he will increase investment there and he'll also cut the payment waiting period for businesses to 15 days. Through e-invoicing, we will be able to pay them within 15 days or even less. And we don't want their, their payment to be sitting on someone's desk where bribes are being extracted and they end up not being paid. Because delay of payment sometimes is because the officials want Jojo. We have to remove them from that. Makura also touched on education and health, saying primary schools and poorly performing hospitals will come under the spotlight in the next five years. He said his MECs would sign performance agreements, which he would make public. He also cautioned that all MECs were barred from acquiring new vehicles. The sitting broke into applause when Makura mooted lifestyle audits, but the EFF said his speech just plagiarized their ideas. The EFF's Mandisa Mashejo. We said community health workers must be insourced. We said the entire provincial government must insource all outsourced workers. They never responded to it. In fact, they rejected our proposals before. We gave them proposals that uh, the Zamazamas must be decriminalized. We gave them proposals that the waste pickers uh, must be formalized and that uh, recycling and environmental management must be taken a lot more more seriously, water management, etc., sanitation, all the issues that he now claims he's going to take um, seriously. When in Mfuleni currently, it's still the defense force that is managing the water system. The DA also said Makura's speech lacked concrete plans. The DA Solim Simanga said they would be forwarding a proposal on Itos to test if Makura was serious about his stance on them. But Msimanga says Makura's plans to copy the DA's record of clean governance would not work. And there's no consequence management. He wants to know how we're able to then get it right in Midval and the other areas that we're able to get it right because there's consequence management. And until we get consequence management in, uh, in, 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 in government departments, we're still going to continue to have a problem where services are not delivered. But then uh, we are, we've committed to uh, working with the Premier to making sure that the Premier gets all the assistance that he gets from us, the advice that he gets from us, um, if he's going to implement what he says he's going to implement and make sure that the people of Gauteng are indeed served. Makura boasted about his progress on arresting Gauteng's most wanted criminals. He also called for a plan to eradicate Soweto Township's deaths to ESCOM of 50 billion rand. Angela Bolan, CBC News, Johannesburg. This July, Channel Africa brings you Life by Design, a show aimed to inspire you to live your life by purpose. Starting from Monday, the 8th at 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central African time, only on Channel Africa, the African perspective. Thousands of Nigerians have fallen victim to what some are calling an epidemic of kidnapping and millions of dollars in ransom has been paid to the kidnappers. The BBC's investigative unit, Africa Eye, has been given exclusive access to the police unit taking them on the intelligence response team. Is this unit the solution to Nigeria's kidnap crisis? The BBC's Will Ross has this report. Uh, These are sacks of ammunition and a general purpose machine gun. We also have here a rocket launcher, which we also recovered from the bandits. Some of the weapons recently seized by the intelligence response team, or IRT, 
Since 2015, it's had considerable success arresting the well-armed kidnapping gangs that have been laying ambushes on some of Nigeria's highways. I was the one driving, and uh, it was around 4.30 p.m. Paul Dana has experienced the horror of being kidnapped. In Kogi State, he was seized along with another man, Spencer. Suddenly, we heard a loud gunshot. Then four or five of them came out from the bushes. All of them had AK-47 rifles and were shooting sporadically in the air, pointing the guns at us in the car. And we came out of the car and he asked us to lie on the floor. And of course, at that moment, I felt that, that was the end for me. The kidnappers made them call their family and friends in an effort to raise thousands of dollars as a ransom payment. They were beaten and tortured, often while relatives listened on the phone. Paul and Spencer were released after four days. They were lucky. In Nigeria, many kidnapping victims are killed by their captors even after the ransom's been paid. Based on Paul and Spencer's statements, the IRT police unit suspects a known kidnapping gang. The intelligence team has pinpointed one of the key suspects and sets off to catch him in town. The team leader is optimistic. This is the perfect time to go after them because they are more relaxed now. They are not armed, they are within town. So we just need to go undercover. Uh, that's why I'm taking off my uniform because we are going there fully on operation now. The team picks up the suspect and then uses him to prepare a trap for the man he says is the real mastermind behind the abduction. They head out at night in an unmarked car and find the alleged ringleader in a bar with two other apparent gang members. The main suspect is adamant he wasn't involved in the kidnapping and says he's a simple cattle herder, not a criminal. They're all locked up in a local police station. It's not clear if they'll ever get access to a lawyer. The cells of the local police station are filled with alleged kidnappers. Most are members of the Fulani ethnic group. Young men like Habib, currently awaiting trial, he admits he was in a kidnapping gang. Habib says the boss used to give them instructions to contact the victim's family, and if there was no money, he told them not to waste time but just to shoot them. He says young Fulani men are lured into committing criminal acts in return for payment. They're then trapped because he says there are dire consequences if they don't do whatever they're told by the bosses. Habib admits he took part in one botched operation in which four captives died. He says he was paid around $100. That's just $25 for each life. The IRT police unit has made some headway combating the kidnapping gangs, but in the bustling commercial capital Lagos, worrying reports are emerging. The Africa I team has met a woman who will call June. Her husband was a suspect in a major kidnapping case. In a bid to get him, she says a group of IRT officers picked her off the street, locked her up for several days and tortured her. We're using an actor's voice to describe what June said happened as the officers tried to force her to give up her husband's location. The man brought me to the boss's office again and said that I lied to them. So they beat me up. Five policemen. You can see the scar where one of them hit me on the forehead here. That was when I fainted, when I saw the blood spatting out. A local civil society group, the Network on Police Reform in Nigeria, or NOPRIN, says it's received a number of complaints about police brutality by IRT officers. Its national coordinator is Okechukwu Nwaguma. Torture, enforced disappearances, and then trying to force relatives of some of their, their suspects to confess. Sometimes they even write statements for them and compel them to sign. 
BBC Africa Eye put these allegations to the head of the IRT unit, Abba Kyari. Any complaint that comes to us, we look into it. If we see that our officer is found wanting, we're going to, we, we normally take action on him. If you find out that somebody has been arrested for robbery and kidnapping, yes, you listen to him, but you investigate whatever you hear from him. Don't believe him just like that. We risk our lives to stop them from killing, to stop them from making money from innocent citizens that they have been killing. And do you think they will like us? You know, these are things they do in order to try to get freedom. And they will go and still talk that they were tortured, they were this, they were that. All lies. His methods may be controversial, but Abakiari sounds determined to win the war against Nigeria's kidnappers. That's a huge challenge in a country where successive governments have failed to tackle the widespread corruption, violence and the growing problem of youth unemployment. And that report by the BBC's Will Ross. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. In each and every one of us, there, there is a purpose and grave. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that purpose. Don't ever let somebody tell you. You can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to, to live, live your life, life by, by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose, dose of Monday, Monday motivation, motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life, life by, by design, design, be the architect of your life. life. Only on Channel Africa, the African, the African perspective. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The drop in fuel prices across South Africa at midnight would have been welcome relief if residents across many municipalities were not slapped with municipal increases, including electricity and water, that took effect as of yesterday, the 1st of July. Now, the price of electricity has gone up by the National Energy Regulator of South Africa's approved 15.63% average price increase for municipalities. The petrol price is set to decline by 96 cents per litre, while diesel will decrease with 75 cents per litre, and the wholesale price of illuminating paraffin will cost 57 cents less per litre at midnight. Now, to talk to us more on this, we're joined on the line by Chief Economist at PwC, Lulu Krugel. Lulu, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you so much. Now, do you think South African residents will afford these new increases considering the current economic climate? To be quite honest, um, it's it's getting very, very tough for South African households. Um, you mentioned a little bit of the respite in the petrol prices, but I don't think that's a trend that's going to be continuing um, in the future because we've already seen oil prices starting to pick up and we know that the rand is volatile. But we're very thankful for the for the decrease that we're seeing this month. But as you mentioned, uh, the rate increases are quite steep. Um, electricity, some municipalities are absorbing a little bit of that 15%. So we're seeing in, in Joburg and in Cape Town, for example, that the increases will be just short of 14%. So they're taking um, a little bit of, of that 15% as in municipalities upon themselves. But still, um, it's a very steep hike. 
about three times the current inflation rate. And then combined with that, water, about 8%, refuse removal, um, if you're a homeowner, property taxes. So across the board, uh, increases in the municipal rates. And then combined with that, last week, uh, the Reserve Bank published their quarterly bulletin. And when we analyzed it, we saw that the increases in income or salaries that South Africans have seen has been at their lowest level um, since 1971. So it's a tough, tough, tough spot for South African households to be in. And, um, you know, we're sitting uh, with debt, uh, high levels of unemployment. Um, It is just getting uh, really difficult uh, for people to meet their monthly, um, you know, requirements. High levels of unemployment, retrenchments across many companies. And a lot of companies are kind of doing their retrenchment um, um, or restructuring very quietly and uh, only getting exposed once people come out and state that our company is retrenching. Why is this the case? Is it not to, um, does this not cause a bit of uh, uncertainty uh, about the economy and uh, for investors as well? Absolutely. Um, We have seen some of the larger companies uh, where there's, for example, unions that are organized, uh, where companies should provide a notification to uh, employees of their intention to go through this process. So some of those larger ones we've seen in the media, we've seen some of the mining houses, some of the banks. um, Hopefully, in some cases, I know, for example, some of the banks have said that they um, are going to try and accommodate people in other places in the business. But, you know, as the businesses become more and more um, uh, focused on on uh, machinery and other types of equipment uh, that, that and robots and computers doing the jobs that humans used to do, this is unfortunately a trend that we will see more and more globally and we in South Africa will have to figure out uh, what we're going to do about it. So um, it's not... And, and then um, on over the short run, of course, the difficult spot that the South African economy is in, and as you rightfully say, Business confidence, unfortunately, still under a lot of pressure. And that's why I think some businesses are deciding to cut back to say, listen, let's see if we can save the business, lease jobs for some people, but, you know, try and keep the rest. And unfortunately, at the moment um, where this is happening, it's very, very tough for those people to actually find other opportunities in the market. What needs to be corrected first to ensure that, uh, you know, South Africa's economy is on an an upward spiral? And, uh, you know, uh, promises have been made by uh, the presidency, President Ramaphosa. um, But uh, with all these promises being made, um, seemingly things are going in the opposite direction of, of positivity. And this should be um, creating a sense of disparity among the people of South Africa. Yes, um, I think South Africans in general is, is uh, you know, pretty pretty upset about where things are and really would like to see things turning around. I think for me, the, the most important thing that we can hopefully get uh, back in the economy is some sort of confidence from businesses, from South African businesses as well, because they actually have money to invest, but they don't feel comfortable doing it at the moment because they don't know if they're going to get anything back from it. So policy certainty, getting business confidence back, and then I know President Ramaphosa is focusing a lot um, on on getting um, international investment in. He had uh, the investment conference here last year, and he's also planning to host another investment conference. And he has a couple of 
ex-South uh, African business people and then some senior officials from government assisting him in terms of going around in the rest of the world and trying to get um, investors interested in South Africa again. Now, we've seen a definite uh, turnaround in that, but we also need South African businesses to start investing. I am, however, hopeful that the second half of this year will look a little bit better. Um, of course, depending on what happens internationally, because there's a lot of uncertainty in international markets at the moment on top of everything else that we've seen here. Do you think we're likely to see the Reserve Bank drop the interest rates? I think there's a very, very uh, good possibility of that happening. I just hope they'll be brave and not do 25 basis, basis points only and uh, just you know go with 50. Um, we've made a, our own calculations and we think they should be easily able to drop interest rates by at least 50 basis points. It's not that much, but it will hopefully give a little bit of relief uh, for South African consumers. And I'm basically 100% sure that they will uh, do it um, at their next meeting. This is untested waters for the governing party, um, the ANC and uh, the government at present. Uh, you mentioned earlier the fact that this has never happened before uh, besides uh, 1971. Now, yeah. this is 2019. Things seems to be getting, seem to be getting worse by the day. How do we get it right as the citizens of the country? What do we need to do to ensure that uh, there is growth and development economically and, uh, you know, we see the change and, and, and ensure that investors uh, do um, come to the country and uh, bring in uh, what we're looking for? Well, I think the, the contribution that we as, as ordinary citizens can make is at least if we, um, if we are in conversations with foreigners, make sure that we know our facts. You know, make sure that we understand what's happening and what's going on. For example, um, I'm taking a topic like land reform just as an example, uh, to make sure that we understand where things are in the process. I know we don't have clarity at this point in time, but when we engage with foreigners to make sure that we we have the right messages. Um, If you're in a business environment as well where you have the opportunity to engage with colleagues from other countries, if you're working in a multinational company or if, uh, if, we, if you're working with clients that are in other countries, that happens a lot um, today in the business environment, make sure that you know uh, what's happening and give them the correct information because, unfortunately, we have seen in the past, um, there was actually a survey done that confirmed that, that we as South Africans tend to have the most negative view about our own country um, globally. It was a survey that was done last year. So um, it's important that when we do engage with foreigners, that we do tell them uh, the good news, the positive stories, and and see if we can um, get, uh, get the message out there. From government side, um, the one thing that I think is extremely important at this point in time is to provide policy certainty, uh, to be clear around policy changes. And also one of the things that's important for President Ramaphosa is the cost of doing business. He is giving attention to that. Um, I just hope that we start seeing some changes. And then, of course, the restructuring of ESCOM, um, if, we, if we get a clear way forward there, uh, there seems to be some movement on that at the moment. Lulu, very quickly, just in wrapping up, uh, do you think that, for instance, in the case of uh, um, you just used a very critical word, uh, reform, 
land reform. Um, the former CEO of uh, BLSA, Bonang Mohale, um, at uh, Osaka, the G20 summit, was interviewed and he spoke of the choice of words that uh, are being used with regards to um, you know, land redistribution without compensation and said we should rather be using the word reform to ensure that uh, you know, uh, people have a better understanding of what it is that government is trying to do for the country. Absolutely. I think um, you're hitting the nail on the head there. Um, the land debate, of course, is something that's been ongoing for a while. But if we just uh, think, think back about a month, three or four weeks ago, uh, the whole debate around the Reserve Bank and the different messages that we got from uh, from within the ANC and then uh, from within the government, um, that confusion isn't working and isn't helping. So one of the best things that we can do at the moment is just having clarity around the messaging. And I think uh, what what um, uh, BLSA said around that and Benang said around that is important. It's about what language are we using and what message, and it should be the same message that goes out from from governments and then from citizens and business people around what it is that we're trying to do and why we're doing it and how we're Lulu, doing it. Lulu, I have to cut you off there. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to leave it there for now. That was uh, Lulu Krugel, Chief Economist at PwC, joining us on the line. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. In the headlines, World Health Organization Regional Director for Africa, Dr. Matsudiso Mieti, commends Uganda health workers and health ministry officials for their sharpened preparedness to respond to the Ebola outbreak. Mauritania's Constitutional Council confirms Mohamed Owuld Gazwani as the country's president-elect following disputed elections, and Somalia lodges protest after Kenya calls Somaliland a country. Left details on these and other stories at night. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa. Life for Syrian refugees in Lebanon has never been easy, but now anti-Syrian rhetoric is on the rise with the Lebanese government increasingly vocal in its desire for the refugees to return to their home country. 
Foreign Minister Gebren Basel recently tweeted that the genetic distinction of the Lebanese will unite them in confronting the refugee issue. Human rights group Amnesty International says evictions, curfews, raids on refugee camps and mass arrests are making life unbearable for many in Lebanon. And refugees are being forced to return to Syria despite the ongoing dangers from the eight-year war. The BBC's Lina Sinjab sent this report. Driving in the Bekaa Valley, you can see clusters of different size and locations of refugee camps. They're all in dreadful situation. And as I talk to them, they're all afraid of being pushed back into Syria. <laughs> Mariam fled from Aleppo in 2013 and now lives in this camp of around 150 families. She shares a tent with canvas walls and a basic concrete floor with her brother. Between their two families, there are 12 people sharing the cramped space. She tells me the general security has stopped renewing refugees' residency. They're worried that the Lebanese government will force them back to Syria. If we are forced to return, we will have to go back and die, she says. Her children are still traumatized by what they experienced in Syria. Unlike all the other families, they are scared of arrest or forced military conscription if they return. Syrian refugees now amount to nearly a quarter of the population in Lebanon, and the country is facing very real and difficult economic conditions. In February, the Minister for Refugee Affairs, Saleh Gharib, made a controversial visit to Syria to discuss the refugee issue. Coordination between the two countries on the return of the refugees is highly divisive in Lebanon. But Mr. Gharib says it's time for them to go. All political parties want refugees in Lebanon to return. But there is a debate on how to do this. So far, there is no unified government policy. But we are trying to establish a policy that is unified and agreed upon by all the parties. We are against any forced return but rather we want them to go back in safety and voluntarily. But yes, we do believe it is time for them to go back. While the government claims it does not want to force the refugees to return, the increasingly hostile environment is making it hard for many to stay. Some communities and the government authorities are cracking down on any Syrians working without the relevant papers and permits, which are more and more difficult to obtain. In a trendy middle-class neighborhood in East Beirut, I spoke to an artist who has been investigated for weeks over her residency and questioned over whether she's working or not. It is not just the poor and destitute Syrians in the camps who are feeling the heat. She asked to remain anonymous for fear of deportation. I do work like many other Syrians, but like sometimes under table. I manage myself, but it's always... Uh, under table until uh, at a moment in time where I actually realized that laws are getting so strict that they actually send officers in order to ask your neighbors, ask your, uh, the people you know, come knock on your door and investigate with you. And it does not have to be very nice all the time. At a restaurant in Beirut, an NGO hosts an evening for workers who support Syrian refugees. 
The reason why us and other organizations are scared to be named is because the, yani, the space for civil society organizations working with Syrian refugees in Lebanon is shrinking more and more. What happened in the last month is that the General Security Office along with the Army Intelligence have uh, come to all of the Syrian organizations. They have uh, requested the organizations to declare all of the people who help them, who engage with them, even at voluntary level, saying that the clause in the law that says that Syrian are allowed to volunteer is about to change and they need to know exactly who is in, in these organizations and who is supporting or even volunteering. They want to know if these people have uh, valid permits or residencies here in the country. The Syrian government has regained control of the lion's share of territory, but the country is not at peace. Fighting continues and there is no political solution on the horizon. For hundreds of thousands of the refugees across the border, they are now faced with a choice between an unbearable life in Lebanon or an unthinkable return to Syria. That report by the BBC's Lina Sinjab. An increase in heat stress resulting from global warming is projected to lead to global productivity losses equivalent to 80 million full-time jobs by the year 2030. That's according to a new report from the International Labour Organization finding that global warming is expected to result in an increase in work-related heat stress, damaging productivity and causing job and economic losses. Titled, Working on a Warmer Planet, the Impact of Heat Stress on Labor Productivity and Decent Work. The report also finds that the world's poorest countries will be the worst affected. Sean Brice-Peace reports. Projections based on a global temperature rise of 1.5 degrees centigrade by the end of the century suggest that by 2030, 2.2% of total working hours worldwide would be lost due to higher temperatures, an equivalent loss of millions of full-time jobs. Listen to Catherine Saget, the chief of the research department at the International Labour Organization. Heat stress refers to a situation where it is too hot to work or at least too hot to work at regular, at normal intensity. (coughs) So it affects workers' safety and health, it affects the economy and it affects uh, productivity as well. Our report shows that 80 million jobs will be lost in 2030 because of heat stress. Uh, We also found that Uh, two sub-regions will be particularly affected, and that's South Asia and uh, Western Africa, where the losses will represent 5% of working hours in 2030. The report draws on climate, physiological and employment data and presents estimates of the current and projected productivity losses at national, regional and global levels. The World Health Organization has said that heat stress linked to climate change is likely to cause 38,000 extra deaths worldwide between 2030 and 2050, while agricultural workers, especially women who make up the bulk of laborers in the sector, will be most affected. Catherine Saget points to the high price tag associated with the lost productivity. Economic costs are huge. They represent 2,400 billion of GDP loss in 2030. That's equivalent to about the size of the United Kingdom economy. Now, there are, of course, um, human costs 
uh, in addition. We also found that uh, inequality is likely to increase as a result of heat stress. First of all, inequality will increase between countries, and we found that the worst affected countries include mostly least developed countries. Sectors that include transportation, sport, industry and construction will also be among those affected by the rising heat. Heat stress is one of the main climatic drivers of migration as people move to minimize the effect of rising temperatures on their health and also try to compensate for the income loss due to reduced labor productivity. The World Meteorological Organization recently found that 2019 was on track to be among the world's hottest years on record, while scientists remain concerned that insufficient climate change mitigation could produce tipping points that make parts of the world uninhabitable. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease in New York. The Lingenye Magistrate Court in South Africa's Limpopo province has dismissed ex-convict Mark Scott Crossley's application to have his alleged racist attack case dismissed. Scott Crossley is facing attempted murder and malicious damage to property charges after he allegedly drove over Silence Mabunda with a 4x4 Bucky at Woodsbrett in December 2016. Scott Crossley was previously imprisoned after he was convicted for throwing Nelson Chisale into a lion's den. Pimani Baloi reports. Ex-convict Mark Scott Crosley today suffered another blow at the Lenyenye Magistrate Court when the magistrate ruled against his application for an acquittal. The magistrate ruled that there was relevant evidence that Scott Crosley had to answer to. Scott Crosley allegedly ran over silence Mabunda twice with a buggy. Mabunda, who has since used crutches to walk, says he's glad that the case is continuing. This case has been going on for a very long time and I was understand. So when he applied for the case to be dismissed, I was surprised because I'm still hurt. I can't do anything for myself. The magistrate's court decision pleases me as I want justice to take place. Scott Crossley was arrested in 2017, a month after the alleged crime had been committed, after being on the run. He is currently out on 30,000 rand bail. His lawyer, Carl van Donder, says he will be bringing a leave to appeal application when the trial resumes on the 4th of August. Piman Baloy, Linyanya. Our economics updates up next with Tabi Solohoku. Good morning. Kenyans were on Monday thrown into mourning following the death of Bob Collymore, the chief executive officer of Safaricom, East Africa's most profitable company, and Kenya's mobile telecommunications company. 61-year-old Collymore has been battling cancer for two years. Sarah Kimani reports. Collymore oversaw Safaricom's growth by nearly 500% in the nine years at the helm. That growth was largely driven by the mobile money transfer service M-Pesa. Safaricom has about 30 million subscribers in the East African nation. South Africa's Vodacom owns 35% of the company, while Britain owns a 5% stake. World Bank officials have said that all signs indicate that Rwanda 
is on course for continued economic growth in 2019, despite global uncertainties occasioned by trade wars. The economy is projected to grow by 7.8% in 2019 from 8.6% last year. The World Bank country manager, Yasser Al-Gamal, says that Rwanda's medium-term economic outlook is favorable as aspects such as inflation remain low while investments continue to grow. The South African State Capture Commission in Johannesburg has heard that a policy where 30% of all procurement at SAA would be set aside for black businesses would not have complied with the law. Former SAA HR head Tu Limche has told the commission that the SAA board wanted to implement a policy to set aside 30% for BEE. However, the policy had not been improved by Treasury. Mchese's SAA board chair Dudumieni was very confrontational about the policy and said transformation was key to the national agenda. The State Capture Commission in Johannesburg will hear evidence from former Transport Minister Ben Martins. Zimbabweans have been struggling with the shortages of cash, fuel and electricity for months. Now, even passports are almost impossible to get. With inflation at almost 100% and acute lack of uh, foreign currencies, Zimbabwe is facing its worst economic crisis in more than a decade. While President Emerson Mnangawa has said that the passport company is refusing to print anything until the government has cleared its debts, others say Zimbabwe is simply too broke to import the ink and paper needed. Nestle South Africa says a reorganization of its operations in Zambia to help ensure the Swiss food and beverage companies continue presence in the country may lead to job cuts. A Nestle spokesperson says they are not able to confirm how the new structure will look and how many employees will be impacted. Nestle says that the company intends to remain active in the eastern and southern African market Last year, Nestle closed its so-called Equatorial Africa headquarters in Nairobi, Kenya, saying the cost of maintaining that unit had been too high. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.81 Nigerian Naira, 10.52 Botswana Pula, 101.48 Kenyan Shilling, and 12.84 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.83 Brazilian Rail, 62.98 Russian Ruble, 68.86 Indian Rupee, 6.84 Chinese Yuan, and 14.10 to the South African rand, 78 pence to the British pound, 88 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold $1,388, platinum $830 per ounce. So the price of Brent crude oil is at $64.87 a barrel. From an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Neto Chimani. Thank you, Lulu. A very good morning to all sport fans. Starting off with cricket news. 
Skipper Mashraf Mortaza says Bangladesh will have to raise their game against a strong India side today if they are to retain any chance of reaching the World Cup semi-finals. Mashraf's side have seven points after three wins and a washout, three points behind the fourth-placed England. To retain any chance of qualifying from the 10-team group phase, they need to win both of their final fixtures against India and Pakistan and hope results elsewhere go in their favour. On to netball news. South African netball Proteus player Erin Bagger is pleased with her start for the Australian team Firebirds. She joined the team recently after playing for the Spa Smileys in the Telcom Premier League a few weeks ago. She has already featured three times for her new team before joining the Proteus national team preparing for the World Cup in Liverpool, England from the 12th until the 21st of this month. The one moment I was still playing in the local league and then um, the same lady or girl that got injured two years ago from the Firebirds in Australia got injured again and um, yeah, the coach called me and asked me if I would be able to come over and then um, Lenise Potrita, our shooter, also plays for, um, was also going to the same club and it was just the obvious choice because we could get extra game time before World Cup and it's good for us to train in combination. So, um, yeah, I've played three um, games overseas and now I'm back for World Cup and then I'll go back after World Cup again. In football news, it's back to calculators for Bafana Bafana at the 2019 African Cup of Nations Afcon tournament as they wait for the final group stages matches to decide their fate of reaching the last 16. This follows a 1-0 loss to Group D winners Morocco at the Al Salam Stadium in Cairo last night. The Atlas Lions captain Mbarak Busofa scored at the death to confirm Bafana to their second loss in three matches at this Afcon. Bafana Bafana head coach Stuart Baxter looks back at the this loss. If you look at the situation we had before the game, it wasn't certain that we would need three points, but there are many ways of trying to get three points. And I think if we attacked Morocco and played very high with our back line, then I think they would have, they would have enjoyed the game a lot more. I think the players played well in terms of their distances, in terms of their angles of pressing, in terms of their depending crosses. And we had also situations, if we'd have played better in the last third and concentrated in situations, there's many ways to win a game of football. But losing in the last 30 seconds of the game from a set play that I think is a very cheap set play. To qualify to the last 16, Bafana have to hope that Angola lose to Mali, Tunisia beats Mauritania, Ghana avoids a loss to Guinea-Bissau and Cameroon beats Benin. The four teams that are already in the top four list are Guinea, Democratic Republic of Congo, South Africa and Kenya in that order. Bafana Bafana midfielder Thompoke Ghana says they wanted to avoid relying on other teams to decide their fate, but it wasn't to be. Well, it's so sad uh, that we lost the match in that manner. Uh, I think more than anything, we, we deserve uh, better than what we got in this tournament. And I think uh, it was just unfortunate that we conceded in the 90th minute. But else, I think we deserve, like I said, much better than what we got. Yeah, sure, obviously, it's going to be said after the, the hard work that we put in the, the whole 90 minutes and then see the goal like that. Um, it's always... Uh, set for, for players, I mean, I feel sorry for them because they put in the work for, for, for us to be here. Yeah, we didn't want to wait for, for such, I think we wanted to, to take everything on our hands and I think 
we were just unfortunate today. And finally, in tennis news, third seed Karolina Pliskova made it through to the second round, beating China's Zhu Lin 6-2-7-6. Czech, a former world number one Pliskova, fresh from winning the Eastbourne cross court tournament, beat the world number 101 on the 4,000 seater court too. She will face either Olympic champion Monika Puig of Puerto Rico or Slovakia's Anna Karolina Schmidlova on Wednesday for a place in the last 16. Simona Halep's persuaded to win the Wimbledon title began with victory over Alexandra Sasnovich while Madison Kiss won 6-3-6-2 against Lusika Kumkum. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chemani. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the sour legal battle looms between South Africa's president and the public protector and violent kidnappings for ransom spread across Nigeria. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za is the Afro Warriors with a song titled Uyangiteze.
refuses to change. It just means that you gotta move on. This is a mess, an unexpected mess. Top stories, Mauritania's constitution.